Welcome to Ladies Who Love Christ, where we love to encourage you to build intimacy with Christ. We'll bring you insights and teachings to help you grow in your walk with Jesus, ultimately becoming the strong, godly woman you were created to be. Here's Ashley Pope Todorova. Hi, ladies, and welcome to session three of our Revelation Bible study. I am so grateful that you're here with us this evening. Whether you're watching uh, live or you're tuning in after the fact on YouTube or our podcast, we want you to know how grateful we are for you. We are walking through uh, a six-week study on John MacArthur's uh, uh, Bible study book on Revelation. So tonight we are on session three and we're really going to be honing in and unpacking uh, chapters six and chapter seven um, in the book of Revelation. So as we begin tonight, uh, I just wanted to, as we go in and we really talk specifically about um, tribula the tribulation, the great tribulation, I really want to just read something to you ladies um, before we begin. And it's really about a general quick kind of overview of the rapture. Because a lot of people wonder, are we going to be here when the great tribulation happens? Are believers going to be here? Um, is, is it going to be uh, uh, pre-tribulation uh, pre position? Or are we going to be post-trib? What, what's going to happen to Christians? And this is a big question. As you study the book of Revelation and you see the severity of God's wrath poured out, right, on sinful man especially, completely and utterly poured out on those who, who, um, who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. It's an important question. The timing of the rapture, I'm reading from something that I think will help you ladies. The timing of the rapture and revelation to the tribulation is one of the most controversial issues in the church today. There are three primary views, ladies. There's the pre-trib view that the rapture occurs before the tribulation. There's the mid-trib view, which is the rapture occurs at, at or near the middle point of tribulation, which specifically as we unpack tonight is when the fifth seal is opened, okay? And then there's the post-tribulational view that rapture occurs at the very end of tribulation. A fourth view commonly known as pre-wrath is a slight modification of the mid-trib uh, position, okay? So let's just unpack this a little bit. The primary scripture, ladies, um, on the rapture is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and go ahead and just write it down. You don't actually have to turn there right now. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. It states that all living believers, okay, along with all believers who have died, will meet the Lord Jesus in the air and will be with him forever, okay? The rapture is God's removing of his people from the earth. A few verses later in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, okay, and I'm going to read that to you. It says, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So a few verses later in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Paul says, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we're going to talk about tonight in the book of Revelation, it deals primarily with the time period of tribulation. It's a prophetic message, ladies, of how God is going to pour out his wrath upon, upon the earth, okay? It seems inconsistent for God to promise believers that they will not 
that they will not suffer wrath and then leave them on the earth to suffer the wrath of tribulation. I think it's really important as we go out and we unpack the, the chapters tonight to just highlight this for you. The fact that God promises to deliver us shortly uh, from wrath, shortly after promising to remove his people from the earth, seems to link these two events together, okay? Now, um, I am most definitely, and scripturally, I think it lines up with the pre-trib view, viewpoint. Another crucial, crucial passage that we've already read through in this Bible study is Revelation 3.10, in which Christ promises to deliver believers from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the earth, okay? So either Christ is going to protect believers in the midst of trials, or he is going to deliver us out of the trials, okay? Either way, he is going to deliver us from the hour of trial. Both are valid meanings of the Greek word, which means from. We're going to be delivered from the hour of trial, okay? It's important to recognize that believers are promised to be kept from. It is not just trial, but the hour of trial. Christ is promising to keep believers from the very time that contains the trials, namely the tribulation, okay? So again, I believe in the pre-trib that we are going to be taken with God before the tribulation happens. The purpose of the tribulation or the purpose of rapture, the meaning of 1 Thessalonians 5.9, I read this to you, and the interpretation of Revelation 3.10 about being taken from the hour of trial, all give clear support to the pre-tribulational position. If the Bible is interpreted literally and consistently, the pre-trib position is the most biblically based interpretation. So ladies, listen, as we go into the study tonight, I just wanted to cover that with you. I wanted to really um, hone in on that because there are a lot of questions about it. And there's a lot of division Again, as the article said, there's a lot of division in the churches over when is it going to happen, pre, post, mid. Here's the deal. What you need to know is that Greek word, we will be delivered from, and our Lord Jesus Christ is going to deliver believers. And, and I subscribe to the pre-trib um, uh, viewpoint based on scripture because I take scripture it, it, very literally. Let me admit Ginger here. So, so either way, we as believers can trust that God is going to rescue us from that and that we are going to be rescued from the hour of trial. Very, very important. Okay. Um, Ginger, I am, I see you're on mute. That's perfect. All of my gals stay on mute or I get a ton of kickback. I'm so glad you found us and I'm so sorry for the inconvenience. Facebook, I tried over and over and over. It was not letting me in tonight, no matter what I tried. Um, so what I'd like you, you gals to do is go ahead and turn to um, page 43 in your book. I'm hoping you have the book here tonight, but go ahead and turn to page 43. And uh, if you will, just be patient with me. Give me one more second to make sure I don't have any more questions here. I want to try to get as many gals on as I can. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Heather, for everything and for posting all that. I'm so grateful for you. I was thinking that right before I logged on to teach tonight. All right. So I love like, girl. I love you too. That was pretty stressful. I'm not even gonna, I'm not about acting like it was not stressful. 
that was stressful and we're missing out on a lot of ladies being here it was a huge huge night tonight but that's okay i'm trusting that the lord is gonna um, bring them all back after the fact when it's uploaded to youtube so we're gonna go ahead and go to the very bottom of page 43 and i want to read under the um context section for you so um as the end approaches, I'm kind of reading in the middle of the first paragraph, if you're following along. As the end approaches, wars will increase, crime will escalate, there will be economic upheavals, and the world will experience unprecedented natural disasters, such as earthquakes, floods, famines, and diseases. All of these calamities are going to mark the outpouring of God's wrath on this fallen and rebellious world, okay? In Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, the setting is heaven, where Christ received from God the Father a scroll sealed with seven seals until opened by the one with authority to do so. Beginning in chapter 6, the scene, uh, the scene shifts to the earth and the effects of the scrolls being unrolled and its seals broken. The unrolling of the scroll marks the beginning of God's wrath and judgment on this earth. So every week, I'm asking you gals to go through a chapter on your own, and then we do a chapter here live together, okay? So this week, we're really going to be unpacking session five, uh, and then I would like you to go through um, chapter six. I say um, session three, I'm sorry, chapter five. I'd like you to go through chapter six on your own. Um, so beginning in chapter six, the scene, the scene shifts to earth and the effects of the scroll being unrolled. The unrolling of the scroll marks the beginning of God's wrath and judgment on sinful man. Okay, so let's go ahead and turn to page 44. That's what we're going to be unpacking tonight. Now, let me just um, highlight something here because it can be a bit confusing. We are in session three of chapter five, I want you to go through chapter six in the book. Tonight, we're actually, chapter five is, is chapter six and seven in the Bible, okay? So they're off a little, um, but I just wanted to kind of clarify that. I want you to go through chapter six on your own this week, and chapter six is actually going to be Revelation uh, eight and nine, okay? So hopefully that makes sense. If not, just get a, a get with me after the Bible study and we'll go through it together. All right. Reading from the very top of page 44, all about the seals. In chapter five, Christ was the only one found worthy to open the title scroll, which ladies is the title deed to the universe, okay? He is the controller of the universe. I always talk about the universe is not God. When you talk to people who are very metaphysical in their belief systems, they're very new agey. They always talk about how the universe, um, trust the universe. No, no, no. We as believers in Jesus Christ know that he holds the title deed to the universe. He is the creator of the universe. He spoke the heavens into order. It's extremely important that as a lady who loves Christ, we don't intermingle and co-mix our belief systems with new agey beliefs, meaning you'll never hear me say to somebody else, karma, karma will get them. I'll never say that because I don't believe in karma. We have to make sure that our words, everything that we speak really does um, bring glory and honor to God. So I want to just 
highlight that there. He holds the title deed to the universe at the very top of page 44. As he breaks the seven seals that secure the scroll, each seal unleashes a new demonstration of God's judgment. Each seal, seven seals, each one unleashes um, a new demonstration. I like how he puts that of God's judgment on the earth in the future trib period. These sealed judgments include all the judgments until the very end. The seventh seal contains the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls. Okay. Now, this may be a little hard to understand tonight, but we are going to go through it each week. And I expect you to go through your homework on your own and really dig in. Each of the scrolls, seven seals, represents a specific divine judgment that is going to be poured out sequentially on the earth. The seals encompass the entire seven-year period of the tribulation, culminating with the return of Christ. It seems best to understand the first four seals as taking place during the first half of the tribulation. The fifth seal marks the midpoint, as we're going to talk about tonight, okay? And the sixth, uh, and the events of the sixth and seventh seals are going to stretch into the second half of the seven-year period of the tribulation. So, the, the first half of the tribulation is seemingly peaceful. People are going to, to follow the Antichrist. They're going to follow false doctrine. They're going to follow things that are not Jesus. And then the fifth seal marks that midpoint, okay? And the sixth seal really unleashes and opens up the absolute utter wrath of God on the earth. It is him pouring out his wrath, but at the same time, pouring out his grace, also known as charis, meaning favor. C-H-A-R-I-S is the, the word in the Greek, meaning favor, God's favor too. That amidst the tribulation, he is still going to give people an, a chance to call on his name, people who have otherwise rejected him. Now I'm gonna read, I'm still on page 44 under now the great tribulation. This is a seven year intense period of judgment on the earth. The great tribulation is found only once in the Bible in Revelation 7:14. It's only found once. And it is distinguished from the general, general tribulation a believer faces in the world. This is, this is different than tribulation that you and I face as ladies who seek and who love Jesus. You will face tribulation. In the word of God, it says, uh, Jesus literally said, take heart, right? You are going, you are going to face tribulation and trials, but take heart. He, he himself faced people who, who, um, hated him, right? So of course there's going to be tribulation with following Christ in and of itself, but this is not what we're talking about. This is the period where God literally is going to pour out his wrath on the earth. It has to happen because in the Old Testament specifically, um, the great tribulation fulfills Daniel's prophecies. It's going to be a time of evil from false Christs and false prophets, ladies. Okay? Natural disasters are going to occur throughout the world. The second half of the trib will feature, I'm just shortening it. The second half of the trib is going to feature the day of the Lord in which God unleashes his judgment and wrath on the earth in intensifying ways. 
it's it's like birth pangs is, is how they describe it. And we're going to go today, you, you and I, all of us together, our, our small intimate group here, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 24. I want you to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 24 right now. It's going to be a time of unparalleled judgment while you're turning there. It's also a time of unparalleled grace and salvation. That while this intensifying waves of, of God's wrath is being poured out, while this is happening, famine and, and, and natural disasters and war and bloodshed and literally they, 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 they call it like a Holocaust type bloodshed where, where um, bloodshed and, and taking each other's lives becomes normal. That becomes a normal part of everyday life. I'm trying to explain how severe the wrath of God is at the same time. He is going to pour out, literally pour out his grace. And during that tribulation, give people a second chance to call on his name and to accept him as, as Lord of their life. I think that's amazing. He is such a, it just alludes to what a, an absolutely incredibly good God he is. But so often we speak of his love and his grace and his mercy, right? Elios in the Greek, his mercy. But we fail to talk about his righteousness and his holiness and, and the judgment that's going to be um, uh, and the wrath that's going to be poured out on this earth. But even then, he's still going to give people an opportunity to call upon his name. He's a good God and he's so worthy to be praised. As I studied in intense preparation, and I say that, not kidding, it was a lot of preparation for tonight, um, hence why I'm probably a little bit frustrated that I couldn't um, teach this to most of the people who are supposed to be on. I want you to understand that, that he is a good God. He is a good, good God that even amidst that wrath, he's going to pour out his love and his grace, and he's going to give second chances. But what was at the forefront of my mind as I prepared ladies was this overwhelming feeling of us as ladies who love Christ, not to miss our opportunities, listen close, and then we're going to move on, not to miss our opportunities to truly grow in God's word, to truly get strong in God's word, to know what we believe and why we believe it, to be able to um, it doesn't have to be flawless, but to be able to share with our mouth the hope that we have with others, because there's an urgency right now, because we know if you believe in the entire word of God, which is a lady who loves Christ, you better, Old Testament to New, Genesis to Revelation, this is a call for us to get serious about our walk with Jesus Christ. And it's a call for us to get serious about going out into the world and truly ministering to a hungry and a dire world. And ladies, it is absolutely astounding how quickly things are changing now in this world. It's astounding. It's almost a, a day by day, stark changes that we're seeing. So I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 through 14. And I wanted to read, I wanted to read this to you gals. It's about uh, the second half of the tribulation, okay, which again is the most intense pouring out of God's wrath. It's where those waves come and his wrath is, you can't hide from it. There's not a rock, there's not a cave, there's not a place you can go to hide from the wrath that's going to come as a, as a, a person who does not believe in Jesus. So Matthew 24, 12 through 14 says, 
because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations and then to the end to come. Give me a second. I want to just get to my, my second place here, unleashing the text. Now, go to the next verse, Matthew 24, 15. This is the great tribulation. That's what it's titled, okay? The great tribulation. Just want you to listen to this. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, verse 16, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains, okay? Those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Verse 19, woe to the pregnant women and the nursing mothers in these days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for at that time there will be great distress. At that time there will be great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were cut short, no one should be saved, but those days will be cut short because of the elect. Verse 23, just listen close, because this is all what we're going to be talking about in Revelation tonight. If anyone tells you then, see, here's the Messiah, or over there, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead others astray. During the tribulation, there's going to be a rising up of false prophets and false messiahs that sound good, that talk a good game. But if you know God's words, you know that they are false, false doctrine, doctrine meaning teaching, false teaching, right? That will lead others astray if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance, verse 26 of Matthew 24. So if they tell you, see, he's in the wilderness, don't go out, or see, he's in the storerooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the son of man. Wherever the carcass is, there will the, there the vultures will gather, okay? So this is, um, this is really a picture of what is going to happen during the great tribulation. Now I want you to go to the bottom of page 44 in your book. The reason why I'm reading this to you, the reason why I took you to Matthew in the first place is to understand that every word of God, every word of God is connected together. The Old Testament, when anyone tells you you can dis, um, discount the Old Testament or you can detach the Old Testament from the new, that is the most vile, literally lie that because it, the Old Testament, ladies, is a picture of what Jesus came and did for us in the New Testament. It's vital to see that Old Testament imagery and all of those prophecies from the Old Testament that literally speak to the coming Messiah in the New Testament and fulfill all of Scripture. All of Scripture is vital and is important. It's so necessary for you to understand that because you have so many people that are feeding just absolute lies and they only want to park it in the feel-good New Testament, but they don't really want to look at, look at the Old Testament, okay? It's vital and it's, it's essential that you get that. 
So I took you to Matthew to show you there was this picture of, of revelation and it was literally said, beware of false prophets, beware of false messiahs. Tonight, I'm going to take you into two other, later on in the evening, two other religions that claim that they believe in Jesus Christ. I've had, I've had detailed conversations with people about this that are, are believers of these religions, and they believe, they say in Jesus Christ, and they don't. Doctrinally, on our core issues, they're absolutely vitally different. And I just want to just highlight it and give you an example tonight of what false doctrine looks like and how easily it can be chewed and swallowed up if you don't know God's truth and you don't know God's word, okay? So at the very bottom of page 44, we're gonna, now that we've really looked at the seven-year tribulation, the first half is the time of peace, then that fifth seal, that middle, that middle point, the second half of the tribulation is where God's wrath is absolutely unleashed. Now we're gonna unleash the text very, very specifically. I want you to read verses two, uh, let's see here, where did I mark? We're gonna read verses two and four, and I'm just gonna give you an example. Verse two at the very bottom of page 44 says, and this is Revelation six, verse two. And I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it, um, he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer, okay? And then verse four says, another horse, fiery red, went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, okay? To take peace from the earth, this is part of his vision, and that people should kill one another and that there was given to him a great sword, okay? Now, we're gonna just read from those two verses uh, on the side notes of those two verses. First off, the riders of the horse that you're going to see, the riders, R-I-D-E-R-S, the riders of the horses are not individual people. They represent forces, ladies. That's the first thing. So you have this white horse representing world peace, okay? And then you have this fiery red horse representing um, intense bloodshed and war, okay? Intense bloodshed and war. So verse two says, um, let me go down here. The bow is a symbol of war in verse two. The bow is a symbol of war, but the absence of arrows implies that this victory is a bloodless one, a peace won by covenant and agreement and not won by war. Now verse four about the fiery red horse. It's blood red appearance speaks of the Holocaust of war. Now we're going to turn back to Matthew. This is why I want to show you this, because I want to take you back to Matthew and show you the connection. It's blood red appearance speaks to the Holocaust of war. God will grant this horse and its rider the power to create worldwide war. But as horrible as this judgment is, it's only going to be birth pangs and the beginning pangs of God's wrath. Now, I want you to go back to chapter uh, Matthew chapter 24, and let's look at verses seven and eight just a few verses up from where we were just a moment ago. Verse seven of that, of that uh, chapter says, for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these events are the beginning of labor pains. All of these events are the beginning of labor pains. And essentially that's what's being described in, in verse 
four. Ladies, at this time, the writers representing forces, the entire world is going to follow false doctrine and, and false, false messiahs. And they're gonna search and they're gonna hunger after and search for false peace. The white horse is this, this picture of world peace, only it's not. It's just the beginning of when God is going to pour out his wrath. And people are going to follow false messiahs for false peace. There's one messiah. His name is Jesus, right? Messiah means the anointed one. There's one and only he conquers sin and death. And only he brings true peace. Why is this important? Because right now, that's why we're doing revelation. And, 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 and I would... I would be remiss to tell you that this is an easy study to teach, even when you're following a book, even when you're following an outline, even when you're following this, it's not, <laughs> okay? But we are living in a time where, where ears want to be tickled, where people are following false doctrine and idolatries and false, this is starting, literally starting to happen. You're starting to see these things. It is a call for us to get more serious than we've ever been about our walk with Jesus Christ. So the white horse signifying world peace, the red horse signifying um, a Holocaust type um, uh, war, bloodshed, where it becomes so vile and horrible that it's normal in the streets. And then the third seal, a black horse signifying famine and hunger, okay? Literal famine and hunger in the land. And then the pale horse signifying death. And if you go through, because I'm going to ask you to go through this on your own, verse by verse by verse. It's called exegesical study methods, where you literally go verse by verse and say, what does this mean in its context? Not how can I slapstick it to my life? That pale horse where God is going to give permission for, for over 25%, a quarter of the earth's population to be completely and utterly wiped out. It's no joke. Okay. So Matthew 24, seven and eight literally talks about the birth pains, the labor pains. This is just labor pains, okay, of what is to come. That, that's what that imagery really signifies. I'd like you to turn in the word of God to 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. We're actually going to read verses 2 and 3. Let me just make sure I'm on track here. Give me a second. Okay, here we go. So you talk... You, you, I talked to you about verse two, the, the white horse signifying uh, world peace and people following false peace that's not really peace. I talked to you about that. Now listen, First Thessalonians chapter five, verse three says, and chapter two, I'm verse two. I'm gonna read verse two first. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. This is why I asked you in chapter one, Session one, are you ready? Are you ready? 
Are you ready to share the hope that you have? Are you ready when God calls you home? Are you ready when he comes back? Are you ready? It is perhaps the most important question that you can possibly ask yourself. Are you ready and are you right with Jesus Christ? Genuinely ready in your heart. Are you sharing the hope that you have? Or are you embarrassed to speak up perhaps in this day about the hope that you have? That's a question I don't want you guys to answer live, but I want you to be real and transparent with yourself about that and in your time with Jesus. Then verse three says, when they say, listen to this, this is a call, this is a tie back to Revelation 6, 2, chapter 6, verse 2. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Matthew 24, 7 and 8 talked about labor pains. First Thessalonians 5, 3 talked about labor pains. It all ties back to Revelation 6, 2, this false sense of security and peace. That's just labor pains. That's just the beginning of God's wrath that's going to be unleashed. They will not escape. After that sixth seal that we're going to talk about tonight is open and God, the day of the Lord, God's immense wrath is poured out literally on the world. It says in scripture, they cannot hide from it. There's no place that they can go to get away. There's no place. Now, with all of that in your mind, I'm trying to simplify this week as much as I can. With all of that in your mind, okay, I want you to turn to page 49 in the book, skip ahead to page 49. And we're gonna talk about, we're gonna answer the questions together. And we're gonna look back at the, um, the verses in, chap in, in uh, chapter six of Revelation. We're gonna go through these together. Keeping in mind that the four horses in the passage the white horse, the black horse, the red horse, the pale horse, those four horses represent forces. Number one, the first seal depicts a time of worldwide peace. How will this aid into lulling the people of earth into a false sense of security? How is this gonna aid into basically deceiving, lulling is a good way to say it, but deceiving the people of the earth into a false sense of security? Well, I talked to you about it just now. This time, this era is going to usher in um, an overwhelming amount of false doctrine, false messiahs, false, uh, false truths. That's, a, that's quite a dichotomy to say that, but, but they're going to fake like they're the truth and they're not the truth. There's one truth. There's one way to heaven. There's not multiple ways. There's one way, and it is to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way. But you're going to have this, this, this um, time of just false messiahs and false people that are, that are saying that they're the truth and they're the way and they're not. And that's going to lead right up to the Antichrist. It's going to lead right up to the Antichrist. The entire world's going to start, start following false messiahs and become obsessed. Listen to this. Literally become obsessed with pursuing false peace the first three and a half years of that tribulation. It's why, Ginger, you, you hopped on a little um, after I went into this, but it's why I talked about the rapture and go back when this is up on, on YouTube and watch just the very, very probably first three to four minutes beginning. It's why I talked about 
the rapture and how scripturally I adhere to that pre-trib rapture because God said he's going to save us from the hour of trial. That's why I'm sharing all of that with you before sharing what's actually going to happen in the tribulation. But why, you know, this is an important question. Some of you may say, and this is not in my notes, some of you may say, well, why do I, you know, why does it matter to really intensely study the trip? Why does it really matter to, to study the tribulation if God is going to rescue us from that hour of trial? Ladies, we need to really understand what is going to fall on this earth. We need to understand with a literal freshness what God is going to do to this earth, and it ought to change the way that you live your life. It ought to change every interaction, every conversation. It, it ought to change everything that you do because you know what is going to happen. You share the hope that you have. You boldly and proudly proclaim the name of Jesus in a world that will hate you. Okay, it's why it's important that we understand so we can share not just the cushy parts. God is love. God is, but that we share the truth that he's also holy and he's just and he's righteous. And I love you, so let me tell you about the hope that I have. People can reject you and people will reject you. Ladies, this is an intimate, nice little group tonight. Let me just tell you very boldly and very raw, I receive tremendous amounts of rejection. Tremendous amounts every day. And I'm literally not just saying that. The louder I get, the more pushback I get. And that is okay. Who are you living for? We know. We know. We have this hope. We have the hope of eternity set in our hearts. We know what Jesus Christ came and did for us, but are you willing to share it? Because it's not a gift for you to keep to yourself. That's why you need to study what's going to happen. Because if you care for your fellow brothers and sisters too, it's going to change your, your life. It's going to change how you live. It's going to change what matters. My priorities are utterly and completely turned upside down, meaning in the best way. All of the things that I used to spend so much of my day working on, building the business, building this, building that, all of that has been completely and utterly turned out upside down because I fully and completely comprehend our Messiah and what he has done for us and what we are here on this earth to do. If you are struggling with your purpose, sweet ladies, there's your purpose tonight. There's your purpose. There's your passion. It is to share Jesus Christ with every bit of you until you take your last breath. So moving on, because I will go off on that. People are going to follow false messiahs and they're going to be absolutely obsessed with false peace during the first half of the tribulation. Then the second question on page 49, what kind of judgment did the breaking of the second and third seals unleash upon the earth? What kind of judgment did the breaking of the seals, the second and third seals specifically unleash upon the earth. The second seal is known as the fiery red horse and that literally represents bloodshed and the Holocaust of war where murderous war and bloodshed in the streets. See, see, we live very cushy here in the United States. We live very cushy. A lot of our, a lot of our grandparents and great grandparents, they saw intense war and bloodshed. This is going to be an everyday occurrence in the streets where this Holocaust type bloodshed and war becomes normal during this time. The third seal is the black horse representing rationing and hunger, okay, and um, uh, famine in the land. 
literally what it talks about is, is the denarius, their day's wage. What the scriptures say in these verses is that a day's wage, a day's intense outpouring of labor is going to be enough just to sustain you for that day, for that meal. It's that intense rationing and hunger throughout the entire land. Okay. And then number three on page 49, and we're going to go through all of these together. And then the digging deeper section on page 50, you're going to do on your own. We're not going to be able to do that tonight with everything I'm covering. Number three, what are the results of the breaking of the third, fourth, and fifth seals? Well, we just talked about the third was famine and hunger, the black horse. The fourth is death. Okay. The fourth, the pale horse, literally the Greek word for this uh, sign signifies uh, chlorophyll, this palish green death-like color, okay? So that signifies death where the Lord is going to, to, to basically give permission, for lack of a better word, he's going to turn them over to killing off one-fourth, 25% of the earth's entire population. Okay, that's the fourth signifying death. And then the fifth, the fifth seal, when the fifth seal was broken, this signifies all of the prayers of the saints, all of the prayers of the saints praying for God's vengeance after that fifth seal is broken. And that fifth seal literally marks the midpoint in the tribulation. Okay, it marks the midpoint in the events that are going to follow and that seven year, that seven year tribulation. Number four, what did John see when the sixth seal was broken? And we're going to read this. We're going to go right to the passages, verses 12 through 14. The opening of the sixth seal literally re um, reveals God's direct intervention. That's his direct intervention and his direct wrath, also known as the day of the Lord, his direct wrath in, in increasing waves being poured out worse and worse and worse on the earth. The sun became black, the moon became red, the stars fell from the sky. When it says stars, the Greeks, like when they were talking about stars, that was talking about all celestial bodies, not just physically stars, but everything, everything celestial falling from the sky, meteorites, a complete and utter destroying of the earth verse 12 through 14 of, let's see what chapter is that, hold on one second, of six, chapter six, I looked and when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake, yes, I didn't mention that either, this earthquake that literally completely destroys and, and, and takes everything and the sun became as black as a sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. Essentially, that sixth seal represents overpowering fear. That's what's going to be unleashed into the earth. And there's going to be completely and utterly annihilation. There's been many earthquakes. Again, in Matthew 24, 7, it talks about the earthquakes. That's why I took you to Matthew 24, such a good picture of what we're talking about in Revelation, the exact thing. There's been earthquakes before, but this is more than it. 
all of the Earth's fault lines are going to begin to fracture simultaneously, all of the Earth's fault lines, resulting in a cataclysmic global, global earthquake. I don't know about you, I think I do, but I praise God that we're not going to have to, that he is going to rescue us from the hour of trial and we don't have to live through these things. But my goodness, it should change how you, how you, um, how you spend your life and what you, what you spend your life doing. And my goodness, ladies, wherever he's placed you, whatever vocation he's placed you in, I always say you're you're not an accident. Every single one of your days was known before one came to pass, but you have a strategic vocation and location and not one thing in your life is outside of the all-knowing sovereign and complete authority control of our God. So I don't care if you're an accountant or if you work as a cash register at a store or if you're pumping gas at a gas station, if they even do that anymore, I don't care what it is or where you are, use it and do it all to the glory of God because there is a world of people that need the truth and the hope that we have. So then it talks about, about those earthquakes and, and all of the things that are going to be unleashed when that sixth seal is broken. And then let's fast forward a little bit here, number five, to chapter seven of Revelation. And then this is where we're going to talk about some of the false messiahs and the false doctrines and, and what this means and what this looks like here in 2022. Not just, not just as we're studying in the context of scripture, but I'm going to take you to what are some real lies and false doctrines that I see and have seen. And, and I'm going to teach you to start to recognize these things. Okay. So then number five, who will be in heaven worshiping together and then describe the tone of the scene. All nations, all tribes, all people, all tongues, okay? All people. It's going to be a scene of celebration with palm leaves, which literally palm leaves signify celebration, right? Praise, thanksgiving, uh, and palm branches, waving palm branches. These are associated literally with celebration, including the Feast of Tabernacles, so everybody is going to be worshiping together. Everybody is going to be praising God together. Praising God. Number six, what is promised to those who endure? What is promised to those who endure? Salvation. That time of great tribulation, that time of great wrath is also a time of great, great grace, charis, favor, elios, mercy on people that God is still going to give people a chance to call on his name, to accept him and to receive salvation. Our part is to trust God fully and to do our best to share the hope that we have and help people to come to know the glorious name of Jesus Christ before they have to learn this way. This tough, tough, tough way. Salvation. Chapter seven, verses 16 and 17 says, 
Actually, before I even read that, let's back it up to chapter seven, verse 14. And I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, there are ones who came out. Of, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and they washed their robes and made them white, white signifying purity, right? And the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the only way, the only way, which scripture says, by the way, is very, very narrow. The great tribulation, these people did not go with the raptured church. Remember the pre-rapture, the pre-trib rapture that I talked to you about in the beginning, these people didn't go with the raptured church. They lived through these things and they are the ones that, that called on the name of Jesus, that accepted Jesus Christ as Lord over their lives. During the seven year period, they will be saved, martyred and enter, and enter heaven. Though it is a time of unparalleled judgment, it is also a time of unparalleled grace. So these are the people that lived through the trib, that believed in Jesus Christ, truly believed in him, but they didn't get to go with the rapture church because at first they denied him. That is who we're talking about in verse 14. But then going back to our initial question, okay, what is promised to those who endure? Verse 16, they shall neither, they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat for the lamb, for the lamb, the sacrificial lamb of God, who is Jesus, who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. The lamb has always been the shepherd. Psalm 23 is absolutely something that I clung to, clung, 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 clung to as a little girl living through unimaginable pain and heartache in my life. He is the good shepherd. He's the great I am. He is the lion of Judah. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And let us, let us truly get excited about not excited about the tribulation, but excited about God's word and studying his word and sharing the hope that we say that we have. Because so often, and, and we're going to kind of start to bring it to a close here. So often we say that we have this hope. We say that we believe. We say these things. But then when it comes to the action, when it comes to the meat to back it up, we cower and we back down and we hang our head in shame. You're living in a, a world now, ladies, back in the day, and I remember, I'm turning 42, and I know some of you definitely remember it. I remember when, growing up, when it was um, almost uh, reverential to, to, to talk about Christ and, and, and say, I believe in, in Christ. We are still a Christian nation. We were still a Christian nation. You're not living in a time like that anymore. You're living in a time now where Christianity is the one belief system that is ultimately persecuted and hated and spat upon while every other religion in this world is, is protected, but not Christianity. You're living in a nation that is turning from God, that's turning their backs in sin, that is taking him out of everything. These are the people that we need to be getting strong so that we can go out into this world and not be, be of the world, be in the world, not of the world, and shine our lights. The light of Christ, the hope that we have, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. This is the urgency. 
just in case you're not getting it, I'll be repetitive. And then I want to go over a couple of things with you ladies as we talk about the false messiahs and the false doctrines. And because we did get started late, I'm going to wrap it up here probably in about 10-ish or so minutes, okay? A couple of things I want to cover. The sixth seal, the fifth seal signifies the midpoint and trib tribulation. That sixth seal is going to commence or start. That means start the day of the Lord. Okay, what the prophets called the day of the Lord or overpowering fear and absolute intense waves of God's wrath. Okay, this is what's going to happen. It signifies the coming of the end of the age. That ties to question number four that we just spoke about. And then number five, something I want to cover with you. Is it number five or number six? Give me just a second. Let's go to Revelation chapter seven, verses four through eight. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter seven, verses four through eight. Chapter seven, verses four through eight. This is what I want to talk to you about. Okay. It says in chapter four, and I heard the number of the seal, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. And then he goes on to name the 12,000 of each of these tribes, right? That were sealed. And this is, again, chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, if you're following along. Ladies, the 144,000 sealed is symbolic. In general, that number is symbolic of the people of God. Okay? And there's a reason why I'm telling you this right now. That is symbolic of the people of God. Not all Jewish believers at the time, but a unique group that were selected to proclaim the gospel during the tribulation during this time, during this day. Now, all of the tribes of the children of Israel, all of the tribes of the children of Israel, let me find myself, my page here. Israel, the children of Israel. A lot of people will say that signifies the church. The children of Israel literally signifies it's a reference to the physical descendants, ladies, write it down, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the physical descendants, quite literally, of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By sovereign, sovereign meaning in full authority, by sovereign election, okay, God is going to seal 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, 144,000. And that, those people during this time are going to be integral, absolutely integral in proclaiming the gospel. They're gonna be a core group who are instrumental in the salvation of many Jews and Gentiles during the tribulation, signifying that 144,000, the people of God, okay? 
Now, we're gonna go to the read truth for today section on page 53, turn there, we're not gonna read it yet. Why did I go into the 144,000? God's people, 12,000 from each tribe, Israel, not meaning Israel, the, the church, Israel, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their tribes that God is sovereignly going to elect to be there during this time of tribulation. And he's gonna seal him. The seal back in the day, it was like a stamp. The seal signified it as stamp. Let me show you exactly how, hold on, let me find my notes here, how it was worded, the stamp. Seal of the living God. A seal often refers to a signet ring used to press its image into wax melted on a document. The resulting imprint implied authenticity, listen, authenticity, that seal, that signet ring that pressed that seal into the wax paper, it signified authenticity and ownership and protected the contents, protected the contents. What that's saying is these 144,000 people that are gonna be integral in sharing the gospel during this tribulation are gonna have the seal of the living God. They are protected. There's nothing that can happen to them. There's nothing. God's gonna protect them as they go out and they do this. But why did I talk to you about that? Because going back to, let me find my notes here. Going back to false doctrine, false messiahs, false belief systems, I see more and more and more people just in everyday conversation with them, ladies, just everyday conversation that I think they really don't know the word of God. And I'm not saying this in a judgmental way. I'm saying it in a way that, that when you hear Christians talk about and commingle Christian, Christian-y sounding type things with new agey beliefs, no, no, these are not from the word of God. These are not solid truths. But then you have people in conversation that say, well, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But as you dig deeper, as you really know God's word, you start to have conversations with them. You start to realize, wait a second, this isn't the Jesus that I believe in. This isn't the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, right? Let me give you an example. Just an example, Jehovah's Witnesses. They're the guys that ride the bikes and walk around with the white shirts and they say they believe in Jesus. And there's a lot of books and I'm not, listen, I'm not, I'm only highlighting this for the purpose to let you know that if you're flippant in your relationship with Jesus, if you're flippant in your study of God's word, if you don't know the core doctrines of why we believe what we believe, for instance, even though it's not mentioned specifically in scripture, the triune God, the number one thing you can talk to these people about that you will see them shake and look so just utterly uh, stunned is when you say, tell me about God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy Spirit, the, thir the triune God, three in one. These are doctrinal beliefs that people say, who say they're Christians. They say they're Christians. They say they believe in Jesus, but they don't really know what they believe and they can't back it up. Jehovah's Witnesses say they believe in Jesus. Why did I go there with 144,000? Do you want to know why they run around so emphatically? knocking on doors and riding bikes and they're persistent. Boy, are they persistent. How do I know this? I used to have a client who was a Jehovah's Witness and she would show up to every single, every single session, knowing that I believed in Jesus, knowing that I'm a strong Christian years and years ago. And this is when I was a baby Christian. 
I'm telling you this for a reason, gals. I was a baby Christian and she would show up with her Bibles and she would try to convince me of certain things. And one day knowing, I just finally, one day I was like, I've had enough. And I've literally had to say to her, I believe in the triune God. I believe in God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy Spirit, three in one. Number one, they don't believe in that. They don't believe that the Holy Spirit as a part of the triune God, that's doctrinal to us. But if you don't know God's word, you're not going to know that, right? Again, false teachings, false prophets, false people, even if they're knowing, like they're seemingly trying to do in their mind what they think is right, it's false and it leads people astray. It doesn't lead people to heaven. But also they're emphatic about their pursuing with their message because they literally believe 144,000 people are going to go to heaven on this whole earth of all the people that have ever lived. They believe that only 144,000 taken from what we see in revelation are going to go to heaven. We know the 44, 144,000 signifies the people who are out during the tribulation period that God has stamped. He is sealed. He is protected to go out and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those 144,000, were sovereignly elected and they they're a picture of god's people they're a picture of god's people as a whole jehovah's witnesses believe 144,000 are going to go to heaven only that's false that's false doctrine when you discount the holy spirit that's false doctrine that's false doctrine i want to read something to you Another thing, when they bring in the Bibles and they use that, they bring in their own version of a Bible called the New World Translation. No other Christian believers study the New World Translation. It's Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, which I guarantee you has many, 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 many things taken out. Do they believe in the Trinity? No. It's one of the major ways in which Jehovah Witnesses differ from Christian denominations, okay? They refer to the fact that the Bible never explicitly mentions the term Trinity, and they claim that the doctrine developed gradually over time. No, we know, go back to Genesis. It talks about literally the, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. There since the beginning, there was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, doctrinal. What do they teach about Jesus? Let me just give you a few little examples. They believe that Jesus is not equal with God. They teach that he was created by God, but is not coexistent with him. That literally annihilates the core of what we as, as believers in Jesus, as Christians, true Christians who, who, who believe in Jesus Christ, it absolutely annihilates that view. This is why I'm telling you girls, this is just one. This is just one. So with my friend, I lovingly said to her, I understand and I shared my faith in Jesus and I shared what I believe, but I'll never forget the look on her face when I said to her, the Holy Spirit is God himself and so is Jesus Christ. It's the triune God. And when I said that to her, she was absolutely, I can't even think of the word, just angry, frustrated, flabbergasted that I would say such an abominable thing. Okay? I'm only highlighting this not to sit here and, and, and knock 
Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm telling you that if you as a lady who loves Christ, who calls on the name of Jesus, don't know why you believe what you believe and don't know the core of why you believe, I'm not even going to get into Mormon Mormonism, who they also say they believe in Jesus. Mormons say they believe in Jesus. Well, if you're just a little flippant Christian who's not opening the word of God, you're going to believe, oh, you believe in Jesus? I believe in Jesus. Let's do Bible study together. No, instead of you truly and effectively sharing the hope that you have. Mormonism is not. It is vastly, vastly different than Christianity. Number one, they don't believe God's word to be the inspired and errant word of God. They believe that there are other sacred texts, namely the Book of Mormon. Okay, again, we hold to the triune God. This is at the very core of what we believe. Mormonism denies the Trinity. They believe that they're three different distinct physical beings, but they're one in purpose, but they're three totally different beings, but are one in purpose. I'm not even gonna, I'm not gonna take any more time with that, but I want you to understand something. You have to know, because when you talk to these people, it sounds good. Oh, you believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. You're... I saw somebody who is a Christian brother of mine, and this is one last example, who reached out to somebody who I know is a Jehovah's Witness, and they asked them a question about the Bible. They asked them an interpretive question about the Bible because they're not strong in God's word and they don't understand they're going to somebody who believes opposite of what they believe and is opposed to Jesus Christ actually. Because when you take away God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, you take away the sacrificial lamb who had to come into this world because there was original sin. He had to save us from our sin and our depravity and make a way where there was no other way. So when you attack Jesus and say, he's just a good man, He's just a good person. You're denying the lamb, that perfect blameless lamb that shed his blood on that cross at Calvary for us. Vital that you get serious about God's word. These are just two religions that say they believe in Jesus. But when you dig deeper and you unpack more, you realize, no, you don't. These are your opportunities to share the hope that you have. We have an opportunity now, more than we've ever had in this world, ladies, to share Jesus boldly, with love, with compassion. Everyone always likes to make sure that we, we, we say that absolutely with love and compassion. Jesus led his life like that, but Jesus sat down and he confronted the root and the heart of sin. Our shortcoming, our, our dire shortcoming in this world is that leading in love and compassion means not to address the sin issue at its root. To do that is to deny God and to deny his power to work in that person's life. It's not your job to do it. It's your job to share the truth that you know and the hope that you have spoken in love, yes, but love is not ignoring that sin. And that's in our lives too. We're all sinners. We all fall short. But you cannot call, you cannot hold, um, you cannot hold hands with sin. 
That's what I'm looking for. You can't hold hands with sin and call it good. Every person Jesus sat down with and spoke to in love and compassion, they ran. They ran from that place changed. They repented of their sin and they ran and they turned and they changed. Like the woman at the well who ran back to the town and said, let me show you the man who showed me everything I ever did. She went, changed. Her life was never the same. That's the part that we miss. Holding hands with sin and calling it good is not what Jesus did. It's not what Jesus did. And then in conclusion, page 53 at the top, while scripture reveals that God is loving and merciful and gracious, tied to what I was talking to you about, the savior of sinners, one truth about him that is decidedly unpopular today is that he's a God of vengeance against those who reject both him and salvation in his son. That's why I talked to you specifically about Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism, because they reject the son. They reject the son. They are essentially saying there's no need. There's no need for that sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross when you deny God sent his one and only son, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever will believe in him, will call on his name, will not perish, will not go to hell, will not go to Hades, will not experience tribulation, but experience everlasting, the hope of eternity, everlasting life. You've got to know that you know that you know, and then you have to share, and you have to share, and you have to share. The Bible repeatedly affirms that to be the case. God's vengeance is not to be equated with petty human vindictiveness or a bitter desire for revenge. God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice demand that he take vengeance on unrepentant sinners. Vengeance belongs to God alone because all sin is ultimately against him and an offense to him. That's what sin is. You cannot hold hands with it and call it good. And that is the sin in us. Every day, I have to lay down things that I struggle with in full-on repentance. We are flesh people. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. But when you call on the name of Jesus, when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord over your life, then you accept that he does what only he can and what you cannot nor will ever be able to do. I'm grateful for that gift. I'm so grateful for that gift because I am a sinner of sinners. Please don't misunderstand. The one thing the world loves to come against Christians with is, is somebody sins differently than you. Who are you to call it out? Of course, we all sin differently. We all sin, but we all, we all, need to call on the name of Jesus Christ, the only one who can save us. And then we have to turn from that sin daily and lay it down in repentance and turn back to him. That's what the world doesn't want to talk about. That's what the church doesn't want to talk about today. I'm going to leave you with a few comment questions to just sort of think about. We're not going to be able to chat them out here because I'm ending after this. But there are a few questions I really want you to think about in the very end of the book. I want you to pray about them. 
I want you to get with Jesus over them, over these issues, get with Jesus, talk about them, pray about them. Number 11, the unleash, and it's on page 53, the unleashing of the divine judgment after the breaking of the fifth seal brings to mind the subject of the age-old persecution of God's people. In what ways have you experienced animosity from unbelievers because of your faith? Oh, man, <laughs> I could write books, literally. How can you better glorify God in the future in the midst of such circumstances? Number 12, as you study John's vision of the future and ponder all that is to come, how specifically are you motivated, challenged, and convicted to walk with Christ more closely? to share your faith with others, to worship God, and to study the word. How do these things challenge and motivate you to literally walk with Jesus more closely, to share your faith more boldly, to worship God more loudly, more boldly, and to study God's word more fervently, more intensely? I'm adding words there. How does it do that? Because when you've come to know Jesus, it ought to change the core of you. It doesn't mean you're perfect. You'll fail. You'll fail multiple times. You'll sin. But it means that Jesus can do in your life what only he can do, and you can continue to lay down those things at his feet and to try with everything in you to live rightly and according to God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you did here today. I thank you um, that you, you gave me uh, really the peace of mind to get through the study with such a rocky start. I'm so sorry for all the women that have missed, but Lord, I pray that you just absolutely um, help people to find this study because it's a message that people need. I thank you for these women that are here tonight that are so set on their relationship with you that they took out vital time of their day, Lord, to give the absolute best, their best and not the rest to you, Heavenly Father. There is nothing in the world that takes precedence over coming before you, coming before you, studying your word, stilling our hearts from all of the things that buy, um, buy for our attention and coming before you. Lord, I thank you for what you did here tonight. I pray that you will do what only you can with it. It's in Jesus' beautiful and precious and perfect and holy name we pray. Amen. God bless you, ladies. I am so glad we had some of you on tonight. <laughs>